What a glorious thing. My name's Scott. If I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet, I would sure love to do that. We're wrapping up this weekend a series called You Don't Complete Me. You Don't Complete Me. Isn't it true that when you were growing up, kind of what we thought about was finding Mr. Right, finding maybe Miss Right? To quote uh, you know, a modified Taylor Swift, I'll be the prince, you'll be the princess. It's a love story, baby, just say yes. A fairy tale ending, that's what we want because that's how the movies, that's what they show us, that's how reality shows show it to us, that's how novels, that's how they describe it. We want to find that person that completes us. I read a study this week, um, there's a great, great book, I, I'm going to quote it throughout the morning, it's by Timothy Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And this, there's a study, 2002, by the National Institute for Marriage, and they found that men in particular were very hesitant to make a commitment in marriage. They were commitment-phobic. And the reason that they articulated that was because they were just waiting to find the one person that would be their soulmate, someone that they would call as compatible. What does compatible really even mean? I mean, we might put some things on that list like attractiveness, sexual chemistry, it's often at the top. What was really interesting about this project, uh, the, mar- the marriage project, they said, uh, men in particular, when they were asked, they said compatibility means this. It means a willingness to take them as they are and not change them. More than a few of the men expressed resentment at women who tried to change them. And some of the men described marital compatibility as finding, <laughs> listen to this, Finding a woman, I'd say, ladies, how do you feel about this? Finding a woman who will fit into their life. <laughs> they, I don't know, those that have been married for a while just chuckled, right? They said this, they said, if you're truly compatible, this is what men thought, if you're truly compatible, listen, you don't have to change. You don't have to change. What do you think? I, uh, I've spoken with lots of couples, some who are working on getting married, some who are working on like rescuing their marriage, some who are just trying to make their marriage stronger. And this is kind of a common refrain. Heard them say over and over again, like, love shouldn't be this hard. It should just come naturally. But let's unpack that for a moment. Let me push back on that. Like, why would we accept that premise to be true? It's not true in any other domain, like if you want to be good at baseball, you just recognize that in order to hit that fastball, you're probably going to have to change your approach. You're going to have to learn. You're going to have to work at something hard. A writer who wants to make a great novel, they recognize that I'm going to have to actually work hard to to write a compelling character and have a believable storyline throughout this thing. And understandable retort is, well, that's baseball, and that's writing a novel. I mean, this, this is love, and it should just come naturally. I shouldn't have to work hard. If two people are compatible, they'll truly be soulmates, and it will just come naturally. I want to submit to you something that the New Testament authors actually suggest, is that, listen, no two people are ever compatible. No two people are ever truly Compatible. Now, as you think about this, you know, young people, as you're thinking about maybe who's someone you should join your lives to, there are certainly some individuals you should stay away from. Why make it harder? Like if they're 20 years older, 20 years younger, they don't speak your language, right? Some people are the wrong people to marry. But there's this lie. Everyone 
is still incompatible. Keller quotes a professor from Duke University named Stanley Hauerwas, and he, he said this. He said, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there's someone just right for us to marry, and if we look closely enough, we'll find the right person. And this moral assumption, he says, overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. He says this, and I just want to listen to this. We never know whom we marry, we just think we do. Even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while or he and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that is, means that we are not the same after we have entered it. The primary problem is, listen to this, listen to this. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. This guy gets it. Those who have been married, he gets it. That quest for the perfect soulmate, it's an impossibility. Why? Because marriage brings you into this intense proximity to another human being unlike any other relationship can do. And so the moment you marry that person, here's what happens. You begin to change, and they begin to change, and you never know ahead of time what those changes are going to be. And you won't know who your spouse is going to actually be in the future until you get there. My wife, Jennifer, has been married to four or five different men, and every single one of them has been me. <laughs> At different seasons in our lives, I'm a different person now than I was when we first were married. Here's what happy couples know. They know that over the years, you're going to go through seasons where you have to learn to love a person that you did not marry, who might feel like a stranger, that you're going to have to learn to make changes, so will your spouse. And that journey, listen, that journey, spiritually speaking, that journey from a discipleship perspective is actually what makes you fine. It's actually what refines you. It makes you worth finding. It makes you worth not losing. But it's not, it's not because you found the perfect person. That person doesn't exist. It's not because you're compatible. That person doesn't exist. That, that person doesn't have to exist. Because this is where following Jesus makes you better at life. Jesus actually introduces to us a concept that we've been talking about over the past three weeks. A concept that has the power to change your relationships at the deepest level. To change you from someone who's always looking for that compatible person, that compatible friend, to being a person who focuses on becoming the right kind of person. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he gathers his disciples together and he says, hey, if you need to understand just one thing, he, he lays out for them the, the one thing that they needed to keep in mind. And he tells them, I'm going to give you a new command, which, by the way, all they ever did was they would look at the commands of Moses. What Jesus had to say was actually revolutionary, a new command. No one could give a command, but a new command except for God himself. Jesus steps in and says, I have a new command for you. And he says, I want you to love one another. But don't love one another the way that you imagine love should go. 
Don't love each other the way that you hear about it in the love stories and the novels and the movies. Don't love each other as you've seen your parents do it, and don't love each other even the way that you want to be loved. He says, love each other the way that I have loved you. This is often called the law of Christ. What God tried to unpack with over 600 laws in the Old Testament, Jesus comes in and he summarizes it with this one thing, love other people the way that God through Christ has loved you. I'll call it the platinum rule. We all know the golden rule. The golden rule is treat each other the way that you want to be treated. The platinum rule, the platinum rule is to treat people the way that God through Christ has treated you. In in fact, maybe here's a a way to make it a little bit memorable. When you're not sure what to say or do, you just love like God through Christ loved you. (laughs) When you're not sure what to say or do, you just love like God through Christ loved you. So how did God treat me? How did God treat me when I was a fathead? How did God treat me when I was running away from him? How did God treat me when I was being selfish? How did God treat me when I was being lustful? How did God treat me when I broke my promises? When you're not sure what to say or do, you just love like God through Christ loved you. These are the marching orders. This is the one thing. And every single New Testament command after this point, after this resurrection, it keys off of this central big idea. As I have loved you, you're supposed to love other people. And then a few years later, this guy named Paul, he was a guy that hated Christians. And so if you find yourself a little uncomfortable around Christians, you would have liked this guy, except for he wasn't just uncomfortable. He like full on arrested them and had them killed. That was Paul. Paul becomes a Jesus follower. And when he does, his life is completely transformed. And then what he does is he takes the central idea about what it means to love other people the way that God through Christ loves us. And listen to how he put this in his own words. Listen to this. This is from Ephesians chapter five, verse one. This is what he says. He says, follow God's example, there it is. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's it, that's the platinum rule. That's the platinum rule. And then as first century Christians, you know, they're just like us. They started to wonder, well, how do I do this? How do I actually put some shoe leather on this and deal with the boss who sometimes is a jerk? And how do I love my parents who half the time are just being selfish and they're unreasonable? How do I bring this into my marriage? Because this, you know, the world has a way that I normally would, would do this, but how does this look like to be a Christian who incorporates this into my relationships? And so what Paul does is he takes this principle from Ephesians 5, verse 1, and he rolls it into these different relationships, including marriage. And so what Paul does is he says specifically, hey, this is what it looks like for that spirit of God to do that work inside of you where you're asking that question and you're starting to incorporate it in how you treat your siblings and how you treat your kids and how you treat your marriages. Here's what I'd like to do. Uh, you can grab your orange Bible. It's page 801. And I, I want to... I want to read this, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to just bullet point it, and then we're going to digest it together, okay? But in, and to honor the reading of God's word, would we all stand together? This is page 801, Ephesians 5, verses 21, and then we're going to go all the way to chapter 6, verse 4. This is God's word. He says this. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is, this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Listen, so that it might go well with you, and you may enjoy long life on earth. And all the parents said... Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And all the children said, amen. Okay, you can have a seat. You can have a seat. So many powerful things in this passage. So many powerful things. We could spend a lot of time talking about. In the middle of this, Paul talks back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4 where God creates this thing called marriage. Because God creates it, God gets to regulate it. He says the primary purpose of marriage is for companionship. It's not just like affection because my dog's affectionate with me. That's what makes us married. It's not for procreation. Rabbits and rats do all that stuff, but they're not married. The primary purpose is for companionship. That's what God creates for us in marriage. And he also talks about this unbelievable metaphor of Christ in the church, that that's this picture, and marriage is this picture of Christ in the church, the husband, Christ, to the wife, the church. That's what we're called. We'll call the bride of Christ. It's this powerful metaphor. It's why marriage matters so much to us. One of the reasons marriage matters so much to us is because of what it represents. That's, that could be its own sermon series right there, but what Paul does is he takes this platinum rule, the law of Christ, and he drives it into these relationships. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to hit these bullet points, all right? Here's the bullet points. The summary says this. says, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now for fun. This is what I thought we'd do today. I just want to tackle the most difficult one on this list, okay? So I want you to look at it. And I want you to ask yourself, which one of these is like the most politically incorrect? Which one of these makes you the most uncomfortable? It rubs you the wrong way. You kind of wish it wasn't there, especially if you're a woman. Right? Which, one, which one is it? Sub, submit to your husband's wives. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, we are surprised by that. We are offended by that. But listen, I'm telling you, for Paul's first century audience, Wives submitting to their husbands was a given. We're like, what? But they're like, duh, that's what we do. 
They didn't have a choice. This wasn't new information for them. They're like, Paul, tell us something new. I'm just going to leave it on the screen because I want it to make you uncomfortable for a little bit. If it makes you uncomfortable, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that it bothers you. In fact, for some of you, you would say, this stuff like that, that makes me not like Christians. And I'm so glad you're here because what you're about to hear, this is so transformational. And I love talking about this. Our English Bibles are actually translations from the oldest manuscripts, which were Greek texts. And if you look at this verse, wives submit to your husbands, literally this is what it would say. It would say, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. There's no verb in there. In the oldest manuscripts, there's no verb. The word submit isn't even there. The verb actually comes from the verse right before it. And this was a typical way in the Greek language that they would deal with these kinds of things. You make the first statement with the verb, and then the following ones would just kind of infer it. So what comes right before this verse? This is the game changer. This is what Paul said before wives submit to your husbands. Here's the verse that sets the tone for everything else that follows in the entire chapter. This is what Paul was doing, he was taking a specific principle, applying it to women that was true for everybody, not just women. This is the part that we don't understand sometimes. This is the verb before this. That was verse 22. Here's verse 21. This is what he says. He says, submit. There's the verb. Submit. The term submit means literally, listen, to voluntarily, voluntarily place yourself under the authority of someone else. Can't wait. I love to do that. What could be more enjoyable than handing control of my life over to somebody else? But listen, Paul is not calling for like this unequivocal, unilateral abandonment of personal independence. That's not it. But this word does not play well in our culture, not one bit. Who wants to submit? But goodness, that's unfortunate because what this does in relationships is it unlocks something so mutually beneficial, something so enjoyable in our relationships because this is what he does. He introduces into Christian marriage something that would have been absolutely new to his audience because it was just assumed that wives submit to your husbands. That's something they already did. They would have assumed children obey your parents. But Paul says something that shocked them. And he said, not just submit, but submit to one another. So people in charge, people in charge, you submit to other people not in charge. People in power, you submit to those that are not in power. This is an all skate. This is not, this is not one person powering over another. If you don't hear anything else I say today, this is what makes marriage and relationships amazing. And this is what happy couples know. Paul says, submit to one another. And then he gives us a reason. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for? Submit to one another out of reverence for? Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for one another. Remember, this is us loving other people the way that God through Christ loved us. And Paul takes it back to this. Every time you do this out of reverence for Christ, that Christ submitted himself for our sake, he leveraged his life to pay for my sin. And that kind of sacrifice is the inspiration and standard for our submission to one another. 
This is Paul's assumption. If you're going to have a marriage that sings, if you're going to have a happy marriage, there's going to be the Spirit of God generating inside of you this ability to submit and to take yourself out of the center and to put the needs of other people ahead of your own. And this is so significant. This makes the biggest deal. This is so insightful. If we could just latch onto this, it would make all the difference in our marriages. It would make all the difference in our homes. What Paul is doing is he's fundamentally saying this is the biggest enemy to a sound home. This is the biggest enemy to a sound relationship. This is the biggest enemy to your marriage. This is what's going to cause distress in your marriage, and it's ultimately this. It's your selfishness. Because nobody wants to submit to the other person. You know what's natural for me? Putting myself first is completely natural. I don't have to work hard at that for one bit. That is a muscle that is well developed. I can put myself first every single time. I want it to be about getting my way, insist on my rights. You know where this shows up the most for me is when I go on vacation. When I go on vacation, my entry point into that activity is, listen, I need to recharge my batteries. I want to do some things that I'd like to do. What's it going to take for me to get that rest and relaxation that I so desperately need? What are the activities that interest me? Right? That's just how I go into vacation time. This last summer, we vacationed not only with my direct family, but we also had a moment where we all, like me and my siblings and their family and my parents and my aunt, we all came together and we rented a house together. There was 10 adults and 10 children. This is, was like the scene at the beginning of Home Alone, right, where everyone's frantic and real quickly all the adults are sizing up the rooms and nobody wants the room that's right next to the hot tub out on the deck because the teenagers will be out there till late at night and you don't want, this is like Kevin at the beginning of Home Alone. I don't want to share a bed with Fuller because Fuller wets the bed. He always drinks, why are you letting him drink Pepsi? Like, no, I don't want this. Why aren't you you defending me? Like, that's the frame of mind that vacations do. As wonderful, as wonderful as those times are, we even tried to like coordinate, like going on outing together, moving all these cars, and it's just frustrating. It's not happening in the time that I want it to be. I don't get to do the things that I want to do. It's wonderful to spend time like that, but this is what we learn when I go through times with 10 children in the house, 10 adults, that the ability to give yourself and give your rights and serve the interests of other people ahead of your own and the ability to defer your desires to help someone else reach their goals. Listen, it is not instinctive. It's not instinctive. It is natural to seek after my own desires. Listen, so therefore, listen, that the root to any problem in your marriage is gonna be self-centeredness, and you'd better look to self-centeredness as being the key. This word submit, it's a, it's a strong word. It's actually a military word. It's a word that's used when talking about someone submitting to an officer. Why? Because when you join the military, you lose a tremendous amount of personal autonomy. All the military people are shaking their heads. Yeah, you you lose your ability to say when you're going to go on a holiday. You lose the ability to say what you're going to eat, when you eat, and where you want to eat it. Why? 
Because in order to be a part of something bigger than you, in order to be a part of the whole, in order to become a part of a unity in a body, you actually have to defer a lot of your own interests. You have to. Now, don't forget, he's not only talking about marriage here. He's saying your ability to step into a family, into a church body, into a life group, a group of any size, you're going to have to learn to not put your own rights first, that you have to learn to serve and put the good of the whole people ahead of yourself. This is just not instinctive. And do you know why? Because like Kevin, Kevin who said, I always have to share a bed with Fuller. I never get my cheese pizza. You guys are always jerks. Like, we all have woundedness. Each and every single one of us have something that's happened to us in the past, and it informs our woundedness. I, I, I read an article that talked about this lady who had this tremendous source of woundedness in her life, that when she was growing up, the way her mom would punish her is she would lock her in a closet for two days and give her food and water and all that, but that was how the mom punished her. And that's not like you know extinguishing cigarette butts on her or something, but it's still pretty bad. It's understandable why she would have woundedness. We, we all have woundedness like that. And when you walk alongside someone who's operating in their woundedness, here's what you're going to discover. They've experienced something where they've been oppressed, they've been unjustly treated. What's happened to them has been wrong. That's absolutely true that they've encountered that. But you're also going to notice that they are enormously, they're usually enormously self-centered. They're so lost in their own problems, they can't think of other people. And when they do, it's oftentimes so completely obsessive, and they're, they're not really meeting other people's needs, they're meeting their own needs by burning themselves out to meet other people's needs. And they're so wounded that they don't notice what's going on around them, and they're so self-absorbed that they cannot see that they need to submit and defer to other people. So goodness, what do you do with someone who has woundedness like that? Well, there's one worldview that would assume this. They would say that all people are naturally good. They're naturally good. And so if someone is self-centered, it's because they're wounded. And so you don't need to challenge them. They just need to, you know, they need to have their self-esteem kind of propped up. You need to remove the pressure off of them. They need to pamper themselves. They need to be good them, to themselves. Walk through Barnes & Noble self-help section. You'll see lots and lots of books that have that kind of tone to it. But that worldview is actually making an assumption. The assumption is that self-centeredness is not natural and that you're self-centered because you've been wounded. But listen, that's, that's a religious belief. You can't prove it. You can't measure it. It's actually an article of faith. And there's no religion in the world that actually teaches that except for the self-made kind of religions of our time. But there is another approach, the Christian approach. They would say as bad as that wounding is, their self-centeredness has actually been aggravated by their mistreatment. And that self-centeredness was already inside of them. And whatever has been happening to them, it just brings it out of them. If you take an orange and you squeeze it, 
all that's ever going to come out of it is orange juice. It will never be apple juice because what's inside the orange is orange juice. The squeezing has just brought out of the orange what was already inside. And self-centeredness has always been inside of them and me. And wounding just aggravates that terribly. It reaches up like a cloud. It starts to choke them. And yet that self-centeredness was in them prior to them ever being wounded. Now, they need to be dealt with gently. They need to be dealt with with compassion and curiosity. But they also have to be challenged to see that self-centeredness is not something that's been caused by people outside of them. It's just been aggravated. And they have to do something about it or they're going to be miserable forever. Most of you probably recognize this scenario because when you first get married, you're Twitter-pated. They hang the stars. They're wonderful. And you're fond of them. That's why you got married in the first place unless you're part of like an arranged marriage or something like that. But for most of us, we're fond of them, and it's wonderful for the first year or two. And then you start noticing, man, this other person, they're just selfish. And the more you see it, the more you see of it. And right around the same time, you know what they begin noticing in you? They begin telling you about how selfish they think you are. And then you can't see that they're saying that you're selfish because you're so focused on their selfishness. And the reason is you'd say this, yeah, I know that I can kind of get it wrong sometimes, but, but you don't understand. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. You have no idea how awful the other person, I know you see this side of them, but there's a side of them that you just don't understand. You've never seen their selfishness. And you're hearing about your own selfishness, but you're sure that the other person's is worse than you. So what do you do with that? What happens when that happens? One thing you can do is you can decide that, that your woundedness is actually more fundamental than your self-centeredness. And you can decide that unless this person sees their, the problems that, that you have and deals with your grievances, that it's never going to work out. But the problem is they're waiting on you for the exact same thing. And so what happens is emotional distance starts to develop. They start to bargain with the other person. And this is what your marriage ends up becoming. You know what? Hold on. Hold on. You just don't mess with what I eat, and I'm not going to mess with when you go to bed. You stay out of this, and I'll stay out of that. And it starts to look like your marriage might be happily married. But when you show up at your 40th anniversary and the photographer says it's time for a kiss, it's forced. The other thing you can do is as a Christian, you look at verse 21. And there you can decide that as this process begins, you're going to determine to see that your own selfishness is more important and more serious than the other person's. And you're going to treat your own flaws as more serious. And you're going to act on your selfishness that it's kind of like come to the surface because that's what relationships do. It's like a pot of stew. And as the heat turns up, all of a sudden the, the, the impurities start to come to the top and it's revealed to you and you see it and you start seeing that and you start dealing with that. And you start treating your own selfish, selfishness as more important and more serious and as the needs of the other person as more important. Because that's what God did for us. 
That's how God, through Christ, loved you. And when two people do that, listen, the possibilities are so great in marriage. That's how you create a marriage that sings. Two people that see my self-centeredness as the main problem. And when that happens, a Christian marriage becomes a a submission competition. You you get to pick. No, you get to pick. That was my fault. No, I really got to own this. It becomes, and you, you got to get ready for this. When we say submit, guys, you got to listen. It's mutual submission. Before God ever says anything to the wives, he says to everybody, you submit to each other. This is a two-way avenue. Mutual submission. Two people living that out. It, it works so beautifully. But there's another option that can happen, and that is that one, one of you does this and the other one doesn't. Ordinarily, that would mean that as time goes on, there may not be like this immediate response from the other person. But if one of you decides, you know what, my selfishness is the biggest problem. It's actually what I need to work on. As time goes on, what you're going to notice is the other person's going to start to soften. And it's going to be easier for them to admit their faults because you're not pointing it out all the time. So the point is, listen, even if one person decides this, even if your mom never comes around and you decide to see your self-centeredness as the biggest problem, and it's, it's, not, it's not my past, it's not my wounds, it's not my needs, it's not what the other person is even doing to me, that I'm gonna work on my selfishness. If both people do that, the possibilities are endless, but if one person does it, the possibilities are still great. So I just gotta ask this question. When it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your significant relationships, when it comes to your, your family dynamics, do you see, do I see my self-centeredness as the biggest problem? If I were to think the biggest challenge in my marriage is, do I, do I attribute that to what's going on inside of me or to what's happening on the outside of me? Because what James, the brother of Jesus, what he says is so true in James chapter four, verse one. He says this. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your stubborn spouse? Don't they come from your wife that won't stop nagging you? Don't they come from your wayward child? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Do you see that that's where it's coming from, that that what's coming out of you actually is coming from inside of you? Do you recognize that? See, we we rub up against this mutual submission. We rub up against this, and there's some approaches to how we deal with this. There's a conservative approach, and it says that people need to submit to their roles, that the husband needs to be the head, that the basic problem is that. And by the way, it can be a problem. God does have desires for how we get along with one another. It's powerful when you look at this. God desires for husbands and wives to interact in in a particular kind of way. Wives respecting and submitting to their husbands as Christ, as the church does to Christ. It's not oppressive, it's beautiful. 
Husbands, loving your wives. He went on at length about what it means to love your own body, how Christ worked to preserve the integrity of the church by presenting her as pure and blameless. Men, do you do that with your wives? When you're in public, do you present her as pure and blameless? Or do you knock her down a couple notches when there's a couple friends around? That stuff matters. It matters to God. We could spend a whole other series talking about, about that someday. I need to. But listen, if the main problem is self-centeredness, then pushing those roles first may actually encourage self-centeredness. It may actually encourage people to take advantage of each other. That's one way that we kind of get grisly up against that. But there's another way that we tend to deal with this too, and that's the secular approach. Timothy Keller says this. He says, The secular approach to marriage is to say, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is that we need to get the other person to recognize and develop your potential. You can't let your spouse trample all over you. Self-realization is the goal. And so you've got to develop yourself in your marriage. And if they won't help you do it, you've got to negotiate with them. And if your spouse won't negotiate, you've got to get out of that to save yourself. And that may actually be a problem. And God actually presents, he created marriage, he gets to define it, he actually created divorce, he gets to regulate it, he actually regulates that. He provides opportunities where that is a good and just thing to do, where he permits it. But if the main problem is our self-centeredness, don't you think that all the emphasis on self-development is somehow going to play into the hands of that and it's actually going to pour gas on it rather than putting it out? If you're married, if you're married, if you're thinking about being married, that self-absorption, that self-pity, when someone points out to you, you know, there's this, I think maybe you might be off on this, and inside you say, but you don't understand. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows the other side of this human being. That's a cancer. Reminds me of what God said in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain, Cain and Abel, Cain, and he's struggling with self-pity. And God says, be careful because sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. And self-centeredness, self-pity, it wants to devour you. You sin is crouching at your door, and so you've got to do something about that. And the the principle of the gospel is this, is that in order to find yourself, is that in order to find the happiest version of your marriage, you actually have to lose yourself. The Christian principle that we need to be working at is that spirit generated, like I'm gonna be guided and directed by the heart and the mind of Christ. I'm gonna think about how he suffered, how he died for me, how he loved me, and I'm gonna bring that into my relationships with other people. That, that, that means that I'm thinking, I'm not thinking less of myself. I'm not notching myself down, but it simply means that I'm thinking of myself less. It means taking your mind off of yourself And realizing that in Christ, you know what is true about you when you're a child of the king? That you don't have to be an orphan anymore. You're not wandering around. The king has said, you're a daughter of mine. You're a son of mine. Your needs are fully being met in me. So you don't have to look to your spouse to be your savior. 
in that same book. He's just been so helpful to me this, this week. Timothy Keller, I encourage you to pick up this book. It's so good. The Meaning of Marriage is what he says. He says, the gospel can fill our hearts with God's love so that you can handle it. When your spouse fails to love you as he or she should. What do you do with your woundedness? What do you do when your spouse fails you again? You bring the gospel into it. He continues. It frees us to see our spouse's sins. Listen, listen. It frees us to see our spouse's sins and flaws to the bottom and speak them and yet still love and accept our spouse fully. And when by the power of the gospel our spouse experiences that same kind of truthful yet committed love, it enables our spouses to show us that same kind of transforming love when the time comes for it. That's the great secret. Through the gospel, we get both the power, he says, and the pattern for the journey of marriage. We've got to love each other the way that Christ loves us, the way that God loved us through Christ. God sees me. He knows me. And my best efforts to hide from him do not work. And your best efforts to hide your fallenness from your mom and dad, from your spouse, it will not work. God sees me and says, I love you. And I'm going to crown you with love and compassion. And I am calling you pure and blameless. And I'm going to present you as without blemish or without stain. So that means that I am free when I am staring down my own wretchedness. Simply have my hands open. Say, yeah, my heart's ugly. Yeah, my heart's selfish. I'm, I'm the grossest person that I know. And to receive the love of God that crowns us with love and compassion, it means I can step into that mess with honesty. And bringing that into our marriage, speaking the gospel over your spouse, Man, it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Do you do that? Do you do that in your marriage? Did you know that the role of the enemy with the saints is to accuse the saints? He's called the adversary. That's what devil means. He says that he goes before the throne room of God and he points and he says, they're a mess up. They screwed up again. Do you do that same thing with your spouse? Are you a tool of the devil? Or can you live the law of Christ? Can you live the platinum rule to love your spouse the way that God loves you? That Jesus would stand and defend. Say, I've forgiven. I've forgiven. It's not easy. It's the hardest thing you could possibly do. But it changes everything. And the people with a deep grasp of the gospel, you know what they can do? They can turn around and they can see their selfishness. They can see it as the main problem. They can live that honestly. And they can invite the spirit of God to step into their hearts and do that work. Here's what I'd like to do, just as we wrap up here. Um, 
I want to ask that everybody just close their eyes. Everyone bow their heads, everyone in the room here. And, and I just want to ask some probing questions. Okay, each of us doing, doing, business with, uh, doing business with God here. When you see your marriage, what do you understand to be the most fundamental problem? Are you pointing a finger at the other person? Really, just be honest with yourself. I mean, this is God doing a work in your heart, maybe showing that out. Uh, if you would this morning say, you know what, yeah, uh, my selfishness, that's a problem. And I don't want to be bound by that. Would you just before the Lord, would you be willing to just raise your hand? No one else looking. You raise your hand before him and just make that be your way of saying, God, I see it. God, I repent of it. God, I don't want it. God, free me of it. God, help me to stare into the gospel more deeply so that I can live this out more fully. Lord, you know my heart. You've seen how ugly I am personally and God, I, I struggle with this daily, daily, daily putting myself first. Self-centeredness is the biggest problem in my marriage, and it's my self-centeredness. <laughs> That's truth. God, would you empower each of us? Would you just make this somehow real to us? That this week, when those friction points come, because they will, that today probably, that we would say, wait, 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 hold on a minute. Uh, the biggest problem here is that I'm not getting what I want. And what's inside of me is coming out of me. God, would you, uh, would you do this work? Thank you, God, that you see us and you love us and you crown us with love and compassion. God, you offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost the way. God, we praise you, we worship you, do this work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.